We look ahead to Reformation Day. I thought it behooves us one more time to go ahead and look at the Reformation and the examples set up for us there. So what I'm going to read for you is an article by Rebecca, Rebecca Van Dudeward is her name, and it's called The Women of Reformation. She wrote it for Table Talk. But just some really great examples, I thought, that might help us wrap our minds around what we are going to be talking about this morning. So she says, conversations about the Reformation often focus on the men, preachers, theologians, and male martyrs. Their work was formative and essential, but the Reformation is also a period rich in examples of female service. Service in the home fueled re reform and raised the next Protestant generation. Service in places of power defended or furthered Protestant Reformation. So first let's look at reforming homes. Wives of the early reformers excelled at using their homes as bases for ministry. Homes were not merely places where husbands could rest and the family could fellowship. Homes were outposts of gospel work and witness. They were places where children were educated and trained for gospel service. They were stations where travelers could refuel on journeys. They were pantries that women used to feed the hungry. Godly homes were the grassroots of the Reformation and they fueled it continually. Anna Bullinger shaped a home that had an effect on the Swiss Reformation. With 11 children by her side, she welcomed vast numbers of visiting Protestants and refugees, up to dozens at a time, into her home. The picture we get of the couple's house is of a place where Anna was perpetually show, busy showing Christ-like love for other Christians. When not at home or church, Anna often visited Zurich's poor, giving out food, clothes, and money when she could. She set an example that became known through Europe, partly through her guests and partly through her husband's writings on marriage and family life. Um, her husband's book, Bullinger's book on um, marriage became a bestseller in that day and was for years and years and years and years because there was nothing like it then. For a pastor's wife in the Reformation era, opening one's home and family to people who needed them was a public denunciation of monasticism. This biblical lifestyle directly challenged the tenets of Roman Catholic Church's teaching on clergy, marriage, and more, as well as proving that convents and monasteries were not needed. Protestant pastors' wives could pray, read, garden, care for the sick, host travelers, and foster an intellectual climate just as well as monks and nuns had for centuries. Protestant housewives made monasticism obsolete. Through their work, though their work was not always visible, Protestant wives attacked Catholic presuppositions by their very domestic work, putting Rome on the defense. And their nurture of children raised a new generation of Protestants who were ready to stand on Scripture alone in the face of Roman Catholic persecution. Do you hear what she is saying there? Just by being a wife. I came prepared. <laughs> Doing those daily things, being faithful, working peaceably with their hands, they preach the gospel loudly with their mouths and with their hands and to their children in their homes. Oh, sorry. All right, moving on. Also, we have reforming homes, but we also have reforming authority. Queens and princesses had a very public roles during the Reformation. 
a disproportionate number of royal women converted to Protestantism. They believed much more readily than their male relatives. And they were not following political trends either. High-profile Protestants were often easily targeted. The same is true for high-ranking nuns called abbesses. They were often aristocratic too and created scandal by perverting, perverting, I am so sorry, by converting to Protestantism. While reformers' wives faced a staggering amount of work behind the scenes, reforming queens and abbesses faced isolation, intimidation, and violence in the most public ways. When her alcoholic and adulterous husband died in 1555, Jeanne d'Albret became queen of Navarre. Sandwiched between the two powerful nations of France and Spain, Jeanne was in a very vulnerable position. This did nothing to slow or discourage her. Having made public, public profession of the reformed faith years before, Jeanne labored successfully to bring reform to Nevers, making the country a safe haven in a sea of Roman Catholicism. This was not without opposition. Her children were kidnapped, her life was threatened, rebellions erupted, war broke out with France, but her love for the church was greater than all of these. She called herself just a little princess and believed that, like Esther, God had put her in a position to defend his people. Her work provided shelter for the French Huguenots during the French Wars of Religion, but she was an, also an example of faith under fire. Her courage and doctrinal resolve were discussed internationally and brought comfort to other suffering believers. Those both these ladies had very different lives, they did have one thing in common, their love for Christ and a commitment, a hunger and a thirst to pursue righteousness, even though they faced great amounts of work, trials, and persecution. They both clung to Christ until their dying breath. So ladies, we may never entertain hundreds of people or rule a nation, but society around us is still in need of women who will show the world what a hunger and a thirst for righteousness looks like even today. With the declining moral compass of our country and the constant attempt of destroying the nucleus family, there's a desperate need for women who will have their eyes focused on their Savior as they work with their hands and love and submit to their husbands and care for their families and have hospitality to all. What a difference we could make if we all committed ourselves to showing the world around us the best possible picture we can of what a godly family looks like. Whether you're a mom, a grandmother, an auntie, or like an auntie to a friend's children, we are all needed. We need mature women to rise up and learn and proclaim the faithfulness of our God and then train the younger women and younger women, we need you eager and ready to learn from those who have walked this earth longer than you have. And all of this is as we are all hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So as we were reading our chapter this week, a passage really intrigued me and I, I wanted to spend a little more time in it. So I wanted to take all of you with me. So this morning, we're going to work through Isaiah 55, 1 through 2. So if you go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. Just going to do verses 1 and 2 this morning, but lots to draw out there. So as we're looking at this passage this morning, we're going to see one gracious invitation. We're also going to see a two-part question. And then we're going to see three commands. So let's read in Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. 
And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So remember that the book of Isaiah is a book of prophecy to the people of Judah. Isaiah was a contemporary of Hosea and Micah. His writing style has no rival in its versatility of expression, brilliance of imagery, and richness of vocabulary. He condemned the empty ritualism of his day. If you remember back to Isaiah 66 and what we talked to there was empty. And then he also condemned the idolatry into which many of the people had fallen. He foresaw the coming Babylonian captivity of Judah because of this de departure from the Lord. So even though we talked briefly about it when we talked about Isaiah 66, it's helpful to remember the breakdown of the chapters of Isaiah as we move forward into chapter 55. So in Isaiah, judgment is the theme of chapters 1 to 35. And then Isaiah takes a little bit of a historical interlude in chapters 36 to 39. So he, he displays the historical narrative of Sennacherib's attempt to capture Jerusalem, and then Hezekiah's sickness and recovery, and then the Babylonian embassies to Jerusalem. And then after working through that historical narrative, the, the third part of Isaiah focuses on the salvation of the Lord, both Israel's need, the suffering servant, and then works through to the, the universal call that we're going to look at today. So that's chapters 40 to 66, all the way to the end of the book. But in chapter 53, one we are all probably familiar with, we see the suffering, suffering servant and then chapters 54 and 55 are a lyrical announcement of salvation and a call to participate in and rejoice in its reality. If you start reading at chapter 40, the attitude is one of judgment, 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 judgment. And after mid-52 all the way through 53, you see a sudden switch in the attitude of Isaiah's tone in the book. And it's a delight because we see that suffering servant and then he moves us into 54 and 55, which is a rejoicing. 54, focusing on Zion. And then in 55, we're going to see opening it up to all. So first on your outlines, we see number one, one gracious invitation. One gracious invitation. Look down at, at verse one there. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. So that word ho there, not one we, we really use a whole bunch. In, in other places in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word is translated as woe or alas. But here, it's more used as a general call for attention. Kind of reminds me of the guys that stand along the strip in Gatlinburg, and they're just hollering for all they're worth for you to come try their restaurant, or come try this timeshare, or come try this, this amazing you know, activity that's here for you. But none of them are offering it without cost. There is a definite cost. Here, there's a general call for attention. And this word, too, gives a sense of urgency or importance to what's about to follow. So we, we need to ask ourselves, who is this invitation to? A on your outlines. First of all, we see it's to the thirsty. To the thirsty. It says, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Now, how many of us have been thirsty before? All of us, right? We come out of the womb thirsty and wanting nourishment. Am I right? How many of those born on this earth have been thirsty before? All. Whether you're a queen, 
a reformer's wife, or just a plain Jane gal from Tennessee. You have experienced thirst. This is a universal call. Everyone who thirsts is a singular group, so it's going out to all as one big ginormous group. But what's fascinating is the word come is plural. So it denotes in the Hebrew the individual responsibility. So the call goes out to one group, but each individual needs to come and has a personal responsibility to obey that call. I find that absolutely fascinating. The call is going out to all, but yet each one of us individually needs to come. So where are we to come? We're to come to the waters. Now, some commentators thought that the phrase coming to the waters meant coming down to the docks where goods are unloaded and sold. So to the riverways, to the seas, come down, come and buy. But others thought that the waters referred to just an abundance of waters for the thirsty. It's a comparison of the thirst with the abundance of the cure for that thirst. I tend to agree with that interpretation, that there's a comparison going on here. If you're thirsty, come, come to the waters. There's plenty for all. And this seems to echo what we see in the book of Revelation, in Revelation 22:17, almost the last book, verse in the entire Bible. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wish, wishes take the water of life without cost. So here we see at the end of time that invitation to come. So in here in Isaiah, we see this universal call. It's a call to all. Come and partake. Come and drink. So this call is to the thirsty, but it's also to the destitute. Be on your outlines. To the destitute. It says, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Now, if you read that carefully, that command seems to not make sense. How do you buy and eat if you have no money? This makes me even think back to our being poor in spirit. These are absolutely, these are absolutely incapable of buying, and yet they're commanded to come. In the why context of these verses, though, we think back to chapter 53 in the suffering servant, Christ. Those here may not have had money, but the word buy indicates there is a price to pay. One of the commentaries said, there is a purchase and a price though not ours to pay. They bring their poverty to a transaction already completed. The feast is one of love and forgiveness. The abundance and freeness of the water of refreshment, the wine of joy and the milk of richness and supremacy is figurative of the Lord's salvation with the servant at its center. His is the price but ours is the freeness. Do you see what he's saying there? This isn't without cost to us. We have no way of purchasing it. Christ already paid the price on the cross so that we can freely come without money, without cost. And yet God freely gives this to us. What an amazing, amazing thing. John 7 tells us of Christ. It says, now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Christ stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So Christ himself cries out, I am the source of the living waters. So direct, that cry goes forward 
And yet, are we listening to it? Are we hearing it? Are we sharing that cry to others? The song we hunger and thirst says, Exalted Son of Glory humbly came down, wounded for the broken, bore the sinner's crown. Through the willing death you died, you became our bread of life. Jesus, we hunger and thirst for you, Lord, as we remember your sacrifice. We see the wounds from your hands and pure side. Extravagant love, oh, how great the price. Now our lives are yours. The priceless blood of Jesus, this gracious cup, a life spring overflowing poured out for us. He has conquered every sin for the ones who trust in him. So thirst and destitution here indicate our complete inability to procure those things for ourselves, but it also indicates our desperate need. We are in need of what Christ has paid for us. In salvation, Watson tells us we are given a twofold righteousness. There is a righteousness of imputation and a righteousness of implantation. Now, imputation is Christ's righteousness. By virtue of this righteousness, God looks on us as if we have never sinned. This is our justification, our one time. So that's imputation, Christ's righteousness covering us so that when God the Father looks at us, he no longer sees our destitute, our, our wickedness, our thirst. He sees his son's righteousness covering us. And then we have implanted righteousness. Now this is the graces of the Spirit, Watson tells us, which is holiness of heart, and life. This is our sanctification. This is just like what Chris taught us in our chapter. This starts at our justification, but continues on in growth throughout our Christian lives. Only Christ is able to provide this righteousness to us. We are to satisfy our longings, our thirst, our hunger, through this type of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Only Christ's righteousness will truly satisfy, and God gives it freely. So it's, it's twofold righteousness that Christ gives us. Once at the point of justification, his imputed, he covers us with his righteousness. But then also by the Holy Spirit's power, Christ's righteousness is in us shaping and molding and being transformed into his likeness. Watson says, the invitation of the gospel is free. If a friend invites guests to his table, he does not expect that they would bring any money to pay for their dinner, only to come with an appetite. So says God, it is not penance or a pilgrimage or self-righteousness I require, only bring a stomach. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. God might have set Christ in salvation at a higher price, but he hath much beaten down the price. Now this shows the sweetness of God's nature. He is not a hard master, so it shows us the inexcusableness of them who perish under the gospel. What apology can man make at the day of judgment when God will ask that question, friend, why did you not embrace Christ? What a gracious invitation. No one has an excuse why they do not embrace Christ. Our gratitude in response to this gracious invitation should be plenty to motivate us to hunger and thirst after Christ's righteousness. So we have seen the invitation to the thirsty and the destitute, 
And now we see number two, the two-part question. The two-part question. We are all thirsty and destitute, but the Lord points out the natural bent of the depravity of man. A, why spend money for what is not bread? Now that word spend there literally means weighing out silver. So this is back in ancient times before they had coins, so they literally would have weights and they would weigh out that silver in payment for things. And it's just a great picture for, for just depraved man, just weighing out anything. And it's not even bread. It's not even satisfying. It's not even filling. But hey, he'll do it if that means they can spend all their resources instead of having to bow the knee to Christ and living for him. They will invest in spiritual counterfeits, thinking they have what they need when it will do nothing for their eternal souls. Their desires are not a true hungering and thirsting after righteousness. So ladies, how do we know? How do we know if we have a right desire or are we just shelling out all our resources for what is not bread? Thomas Watson gave us ways of knowing if your desire is hypocritical or not. So number one, the hypocrite does not desire grace for itself. So what does he mean by that? He says he desires grace only as a bridge to lead him over to heaven. He does not so much thirst after grace as he does glory. He does not so much desire the way of righteousness as much as the crown of righteousness. His desire is not to be made like Christ, but to reign with Christ. Do you hear what he's saying there? So sad. I want all the benefits. Lay it on me. I love it. I want a crown. I want to go to heaven. I definitely would love to reign with Christ. I have some great ideas. But he doesn't want the way of righteousness. He doesn't truly desire to be shaped and molded by affliction to become like Christ. He just wants a life of ease. Well, I'll, I'll take all the benefits of grace, but not grace itself. Because that means I have to deny myself. That means I have to take the hard road. That means I have to fight against the way of this world. And that's exhausting. No, thank you. But I'll take heaven. That'll be fine. So, and a lot of times, do we not meet people where they have their fire insurance? You try to tell somebody their gospel and they say, oh, no, no, honey, I'm fine. I'm fine. I prayed a prayer. I was a deacon for 20 years in my church. I'm good. And they literally mean, I am good. But unfortunately, there is no change in their life. There is no seeking and hungering and thirsting after righteousness. They just want that end ticket. Or number two, the hypocrite's desire is conditional. It's conditional. What does he mean by that? Watson says he wants to have heaven and his sins too. Heaven and his pride or heaven and his covetousness. A true believer is content to do anything, to forsake all so that he might have Christ. But one who's conditional, well, I'll come, but not going to give up this. Again, that desire for heaven, that desire for the ticket, but they don't want to forsake all. But God, I'll, I'll do this, but I'm going to keep this. I'll live for you, but I mean, you made me an angry person, so if I blow my top once in a while, that won't be a big deal. Being blind to their sin or loving their sin and wanting to hold both in both hands. Love their sin because it makes me feel good. And I'll love Jesus too because he makes me feel good too. 
very conditional, want to hold it in both hands. And ladies, do we not sometimes slip into mimicking this hypocritical um, illustration? We want, we want Christ, and we may be true believers. We truly do desire after hunger and thirst, but we slip back, and we want to hold on to sin. We want to hide it. We want to keep it because, man, he deserves to be my anger. I mean, he's the one who annoyed me in the first place. Instead of forsaking all, no, no, unconditional. I lay down all to follow Christ. I forsake all to have Christ. Number three, the hypocrite's desires are lazy and sluggish. They're both lazy and sluggish. Watson said, a true desire is quickened. It's made alive into endeavor. It won't stay put. We have to do something. Our gratitude overflows into service for Christ. We don't just stay there and say, well, I'm just going to sit here and let go of my God. I'm just going to rest in Christ, but I'm not going to change. I'll wait till he changes me. No, our gratitude for the salvation, for Christ's righteousness, pushes us into action. So true desire is quickened into endeavor. We lay plans into executing the righteousness of Christ. Number four, the hypocrite's desires are cheap. They are cheap. What does he mean by that? He will spend for his lusts and pleasures, but will not invest his money in the church or in cheerful giving. Watson says he cares not how much money he parts with for his lusts. So here, ladies, it would be a fascinating exercise to go home and actually look at our bank accounts and write down and compare how much do we spend on entertainment and going out than what we give to the church or to others or for the Lord's work in different areas of the world. It just would be interesting to see in a very, very fundamental, practical way, how is that comparison? Do we give little to the church and much to ourselves? I mean, obviously, the Lord is gracious and provides for our needs, but do we consider, are we cheerfully giving even of our money to the church and to other worthy places? Or are we quick to just heap it to ourselves? Number five, the hypocrite's desires are quickly gone. Watson says, while under affliction, he has some good desires, but the hot fit is soon over. So while he's under pressure, while he's under heat, he might exhibit some good desires, but as soon as the pressure is off, his good desires flitter away and it's gone. It is not steadfast. There's no commitment to continue hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It's only for God, get me out of this and then I'll, and then it's done. Number six, the hypocrite's desires are un timely untimely what does he mean by this they put off hungering after righteousness until it is too late often on the deathbed when they can't have their sin any longer then they want a passport to carry them to heaven so there's just an untimely to us oh i'll get to that later oh i'll change later oh i'll fix that later then they come to their deathbed and realize I'm about to stand before the Lord. And then all of a sudden they hunger and thirst after righteousness. But it is an untimely desire. So as we think through all these different ways of knowing whether our desires are hypocritical or not, we move on to why the second part of that question, why spend wages for what doesn't satisfy? Be on your outlines. Why spend wages for what doesn't satisfy? The verse says, why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? 
Jeremiah 31, 25 says, For I, meaning the Lord, satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. So here the Lord is crying out, why do you spend money on things that aren't real? Why do you spend your wages on things that do not satisfy? That word wages there is a result of toil. So you have money, which is the actual piecing out of your silver, but he also brings in the product of your labors. Here's all the product of your labors, and yet you spend it on what does not satisfy. So what kinds of things do people try to satisfy themselves instead of turning to the Lord for satisfaction and hungering and thirsting after Christ's righteousness? Number one, we turn to our own self-righteousness. Our own self-righteousness. Romans 10.3 says, For not knowing about God's righteousness, and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So ladies, are we looking at ourselves and saying, well, I'm okay because I'm not as bad as them. It's funny, Watson says, or I should say it's ironic, not funny, that Watson says, it, it, it blew my mind how much I'm reading through it, and this is hundreds of years ago, and yet it is nothing new under the sun, directly relates even today. He said, you'll look around you, and, well, you won't be as godly as some who are way ahead of you, but you're satisfied because you look behind you and you say, oh, but I'm not as bad as them, so I'm okay. As long as I'm in the middle of the pack, I'm fine. I'm not as bad as them. Okay, maybe I'm not like them, but I'm not like them. And we rely on our own self-righteousness instead of running to Christ for his righteousness. Or number two, people seek satisfaction from the things of the world. The things of the world. Watson says, you will hear men complain that they want health. They want trading business, but they never complain that they want righteousness. So it's, uh, again, amazing to me how that just directly speaks into today. You hear all sorts of men whining and complaining and desiring and seeking after their own health or, or desiring and wanting and complaining that they don't have enough business again, to build their own wealth. But rarely do you hear somebody moan, I'm just not like Christ enough. Obviously, a true believer will. A true believer will seek after that kind of righteousness. But the world around us seeks satisfaction anywhere else but Christ. So 1 Timothy 6.17 said, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So no satisfaction in self-righteousness, no satisfaction in the things of this world. Number three, the world seeks for satisfaction in our own comforts, our own comforts or otherwise our own laziness or our own pleasures. Proverbs 21, 25, and 26 says, The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. So J.R. Miller says this, Many people sing with fervor, Nearer, my God, to thee, but really have no real desire to get nearer to God. Many pray to be made more like Christ, who never think what it would mean to them to become indeed like Christ. Nor does this hunger for righteousness exhaust itself in mere longing. There is too much idle longing. 
It says its prayers and it sings its hymns and breathes out its sighs and aspirations for holiness. But it takes no tangible steps towards the realization of the righteousness it so yearns to possess. Not so easily can this righteousness be attained. Nor artist ever dreamed a great picture upon his canvas. It takes skill and toil to see this dream in color so that its beauty may charm the beholder. No godly man ever longed himself into a splendid character. It took years of patient self-denial, self-restraint, and self-discipline to build up the life which show, so reflects the holiness of Christ. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Do you hear what he's saying there? An artist doesn't just sit there and dream, or the picture is just going to stay in his own mind. It's never going to be produced. It's never going to become reality. Just like us, if we just sit there and we imagine ourselves, ladies, I can imagine myself super holy. Let me tell you, I'm always good in my responses to my husband, my children, life around me. But when real life comes and that gut reaction comes, it's a different picture altogether. If I do not stop and think, okay, I want to be holy. I truly do. What steps do I take to be more like Christ? And then start stepping, start doing it. Um, Chris, in, in our chapter, gave great steps of different ways to grow in our holiness. Those were impactful to read through, to be convicted, to see where I need to, to stretch and to grow and to take measurable steps. It's not a, oh, I long to know Christ's word better because I know I can't get nearer to him without truly knowing him. But are we taking measurable steps? I will get up 15 minutes earlier. Think about it, ladies. Really, what is 15 minutes uh, in our span of time of day? I will get up 15 minutes earlier so that I can have longer to read his word, to meditate, to obey. I will write out actionable steps. I will take Yvonne's message from last week in gentleness. I want to grow in my gentleness. I had a misunderstanding of what that looked like. Here are measurable ways I am going to work on my responses and my tone to my husband so that they are respectful and submissive instead of argumentative and, and downputting. I am going to go confront that person in my life that I need to focusing on Galatians 6.1, with the spirit of gentleness. But I'm going to use just the right amount of force in the right measurable moment. I'm going to make sure no unwholesome word leaves my mouth. Are we doing actionable steps instead of a vague, yeah, I, I do want to be more like Christ. But unless we discipline ourselves, is that ever going to actually happen? And two, ladies, what a joy when we say, we look back at our week and we say, Christ empowered me with the Holy Spirit to be able to obey. I had measurable results. I had victory in Christ over my sin. And it encourages us, it motivates us to go further, to climb higher. That is what we want in our lives. Number four. Often they want to satisfy, the world wants to satisfy themselves with garnishes instead of wholesome food. I loved this picture, garnishes. So think about like parsley on a plate or little thing, the little twist of orange where it just brings a beauty to the plate, but it's not actually for your hunger satisfaction. It's not actually intended for you to eat. It's just pretty things, frivolous things on the plate. So what does he mean by that? He means flowery and elegant speeches instead of 
the plain truth of a spiritual matter. They want little tickling ears with beautiful speeches being made, but they don't actually want direct spiritual truth spoken on a matter. Romans 16, 17, and 18 says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who call, cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. So we are to watch out. Are we just desiring the beautiful speeches and the beautiful things? Or are we wanting the truth of the matter? And both can come together. You can have beautiful speeches. Jeremy Walker has beautiful sermons and yet drives right to the matter, the spiritual matter of the point. He doesn't have frivolousness. He drives at home. So number five, they seek airy notions of pretend revelations instead of the solid food of the word. So airy notions. What in the world does he mean by that? And I have pretend revelations in quotations because that's exactly what he called them. This is the person who would rather have those special revelations, the special feelings, the, but God told me instead of the sure word of God. 2 Peter 1, 17 through 19 says, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made by him, by him, by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So this is Peter talking here. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter's referring back to the Mount of Transfiguration. Ladies, this event really happened. This was reality. But what does he say? Look down. Oh, well, you can't look down. I'll look down. You listen. He says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure, meaning the word of God to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So Peter is saying that the word of God is even more sure than real experiences that really happened. I remember Ron telling me about talking to a gentleman and this gentleman was talking to him and telling him a story about how he had tried to confront somebody in their sin and he brought scripture to bear and it didn't work. And then he went on um, discouraged. And then uh, I think it was a couple nights later, he had a dream and God told him something. So he got up, he went back to the man and told him, God told me in a dream to tell you this. And the man turned from his sin and repented. And so this man was talking to Ron saying, see, see, it's true. And he used his experience in a dream and he trusted his dream more than the word of God. That is a very, very dangerous place to find yourself. We need to center our mind, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions on the word of God. That does not change. It is for sure, forever. It is everlasting. Our feelings, our experiences, up and down, they change. The word of God lasts forever. We should not base anything on this world's experiences. We should base everything on the sure word of God. What else does the world focus on and find their satisfaction? Number six, debates about religious matters, but they don't care about practicing true religion. They'll spend all day long debating secondary notions or debating this, that, and the other thing. Have you ever tried to witness to somebody like that? Oh, yeah, but what about the sons of God you read in Genesis? Who were they? And you're like, I'm trying to give you living water, and you want to talk about the sons of God? So 
What does scripture say? Titus 3, 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man, a man who creates factions, after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. So ladies, we definitely want to make sure we also are not such a person that is spending all our time just debate, 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 debate. Is it good to think long and hard and talk to each other about the precious truths we find in Scripture? Yes. Is it good to just argue all the time? No. Being right is not a hill to die on. So sometimes humbleness of heart, learning, eager to learn, but also looking at ourselves. Am I just debating all the time, but not even practicing that true religion, that hungering after righteousness, that thirsting after Christ? And then number seven, something that the world seeks satisfaction in is revenge instead of entrusting it to the righteous judge. They want revenge. This is part of the it's not fair syndrome. Just life is just not there. So people harm us, so we try to get back at people that we deem have done us wrong instead of forgiveness and trusting the Lord to work in the situation. Has getting revenge or getting back at people or being happy at their harm ever truly satisfied you? You might have a moment's pleasure, but does that moment's pleasure last? Christ has given us a different example in 1 Peter 2, 23. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So why in the world, ladies, would we try to buy things that are not bread and will not provide for what our souls need? And why would we spend all our energies into things that do not satisfy when God is crying out to mankind to come and eat of what he has provided for free? Are we mimicking the hypocrite's desires? Are we spending all our time, attention, and energies into things that will not satisfy? Going back to those habits that defined us before we followed Christ. So ladies, we have seen one gracious invitation. We've seen the twofold question. And now number three, the three commands. The three commands. Look down at verse two. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. So the first command we see in verse 2 is to listen. Listen. Listen carefully. There are means to listen persistently. And it's funny, if you look at the Hebrew term for this, it's the same Hebrew phrase, one right after the other. So it's listen, listen. But... It's repeated twice for emphasis. Remember, it, it, it often in Hebrew or in the Jewish culture, you repeated yourself for added emphasis. John 5, 24 says, Christ is talking here saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So, ladies, do we listen to our gracious God? Or... If you remember back to Isaiah 66, do we throw the shoulder? I'm not going to listen. Do we listen? Do we meditate on the graciousness of this free invitation? Are we listening diligently and carefully for the purpose of obedience? Or do we glaze over as we read the word of God and go on with our days, not remembering what we read after we lay our Bibles aside? So not only are we to listen, we are to be, eat. Eat, the verse there says, eat what is good. So good is good things. So it's the collectiveness, all good things. This is an experiential act of partaking of what God freely gives. So internalizing it. Psalm 34, 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
This is an experiential thing. We lay hold of Christ. We lay hold of his righteousness. Um, Psalm 107 um, gives a beautiful analogy. Says, um, I'm going to read 9 through 15. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul. He has filled with what is good. There were those who dwelt in darkness and the shadow of death, prisoners and mercy and chains, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. Now in the New Testament, Jesus gives a warning of not obeying the command of eat. John 6, 53 says, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. Of course, he is not physically, this is a metaphorically speaking, but that partaking of him, that experience of laying hold of Christ himself, if we have not done so, if we have not obeyed, then we are in great danger So we're to listen, we're to eat, but we are also to see delight. Delight. And ladies, it's a good day when you're actually commanded to delight. So look down at your verse. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in abundance. That word delight means to take exquisite delight. And yourself in the New King James translates your soul. And that abundance there is fatness, abundance, luxuriance, even is is sometimes used of oil. But here it's passing over into the figurative of spiritual blessings. So he wants you to delight in your spiritual blessings there. And not just just enough. There's a luxuriousness there. I don't know if you ever go on Pinterest and look at it, but have you ever seen what's called a grazing table? I love it. It's like a charcuterie. I always slaughter it. Don't worry. A charcuterie board on steroids. So it's a whole table and you lay it out and you're supposed to make it as gorgeous and colorful as possible. I love food and I love making food look pretty so that people go from, oh, that's nice to, oh, that's beautiful not always successful, but I like it. But if you look at these Pinterest pages, there's crackers and and olives and pickles and fruit laid out, sumptuous grapes and different kind of cheeses that you want to quickly shove in your mouth. And it's all so beautiful and chocolates, nuts, anything your heart would desire. And usually taper candles in the back for the romantic touch. I know, right? All getting hungry. So, but this is what this makes me think of. Here we are without money, thirsty, hungry. And yet the Lord sets out this abundance and says, come, come and eat. Come and partake of the beautiful things I've set out for you. Psalms 37, three through six says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the new day. J.R. Miller says, righteousness is godliness. It includes all that is worthy and godlike. The lofty standard is set in our Lord's teaching Be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We have another glimpse of it in the prayer, that we may do God's will as it is done in heaven. The life of heaven is the pattern for those who are seeking after righteousness. It begins in the heart when Christ is first received and works itself out to 
all the life and character. In its perfection, this righteousness is the image of Christ, a measure which embraces all moral excellence. Righteousness is something very real. It is holiness of life. It is Christ-likeness in character. It is uprightness and integrity in all conduct, obedience to God's commands, the cheerful acceptance of the divine will, even when it traverses our own will. This is very different from what many people thought of holiness. They think of some sort of halo encircling the brow, a spiritual ecstasy too sublime, too ethereal for this world's everyday life. But the righteousness which the Bible sets as copy for our living is righteousness which takes God's commandments as working rules for life. Let's pray.